hello, hello. Welcome to the Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon find themselves in an international conspiracy when an ex turns out to be a spy. But does hilarity ensue? Did you think then it was love at first sight? Actually, I'm beginning to think it was. If Sia Sharonan is one of your faves and you're also a fan of love stories set on English beaches, you're going to want to hear about On Chessel Beach. Everybody wants to be great. Everybody wants to be super fly. They want to be us. Remember the film clip for Started From The Bottom by Drake? Well, the director has graduated to Hollywood, and this week we get his remake of 1972 black exploitation classic Superfly. That's this week on the Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. Hello, my name is Kyron Wheatley. We're here to sift through new releases before they've been released. With a PhD in film, we're joined by Vari McIntyre. Hello. Hello. Now the spy who dumped me seems like a terrible excuse to be dumped. A spy? Have you had a yeah. really terrible excuse for a, a dumping? Well, I've actually dumped someone. Um, oh, the other way around. For, yeah, for a bad excuse. Uh, for a couple of times, kind of ghosted me when we were supposed to catch up and said that he was at his friend's place and his phone fell in the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that wasn't going to work. I mean, how's he going to get that out? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a toughie. There's no future there. Unless you're like sitting on the couch watching movies, perhaps, <laughs> which I think you do. Michael Campbell from Village Cinemas is here. Yeah, same so, question. Well, I was thinking, you know, it would be really depressing if someone said, you know, they did the classic, I got a ship off to war. Uh. Like, There's no war on right now. What are you talking about? They're like, yeah, oh, don't look into it. <laughs> think about that yourself. Keep listening. We've got your chance to win a Village Cinemas Gold Class double pass a little later on. Do you want to die having never been to Europe? Or do you want to go to Europe and die having been to Europe? Why are those my only two options? Kate McKinnon, you know. She played Hillary Clinton all through the election campaign for SNL and she's been on Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. She's excellent. Mila Kunis, you know. She starred in Black Swan as the Black Swan and she's in Forgetting Sarah Marshall and, of course, that 70s show. But this is the first big Hollywood movie for writer-director Susanna Fogel. Vari, how'd she do? Yeah, well, this one was an interesting one because I really like these two comedic actresses. Um, And this is the first time that Mila Kunis has said she's been directed by a woman. And these two women have had really long, glorious careers. And Mm. this is the first time they've been directed by a woman. So (laughs) it's remarkable. Yeah, so they did really well with this one. Now, it's about these two best friends, Audrey and Morgan, who get themselves embroiled in an international conspiracy and are on the run throughout Europe after they discover that Audrey's boyfriend, who dumped her, is an actual secret agent spy. Not a very good one, obviously, if his ex is finding out that he's a spy. Yeah, well, they kind of just... uh, That's information they tend to keep to themselves. Yeah, well, they do kidnap her and just sort of straight up tell her and then let her out and go, all right, we're going to look for him, okay, bye. Right. So there is a lot of suspension of disbelief in this movie as as some of the information is fed to them in unbelievable ways. Yeah. It's a comedy, though. If you're going in looking for like a Jason Bourne-style espionage (laughs) thriller, you'll be a little disappointed. And what works the best in this film, I think by far, is the chemistry between Kate McKinnon and uh, Mila Kunis. They're so funny together. And it's one of those pairings that I guess I just never, you know, I'd never thought of Mm. before as a pairing, but they just feed off each other so well. It's almost like got the classic romantic comedy tropes, but not between like Mila Kunis and her love interest, but between these two. Yeah. How's Kate McKinnon? I think she's one of the funniest Isn't people on she? the planet. She's so funny. Yeah. And I, I would say she's the easy scene stealer. And every time she kind of opens her mouth and you can tell it's kind of like a lightly improvised script. Yeah. And some of the stuff that she comes up with is so funny. 
You mentioned before about the friendship is the main emotional crux of this story and they really stick together throughout this. But there is a charismatic, charming British spy that comes in, Sam Hewen. You might know him from Outlander. He's the main hunk in that TV show. See, I've never seen Outlander, but what I do know about it just through osmosis is that he has his shirt off a lot. <laughs> he does, yeah. That's why <laughs> you, you watch you it. You picked that up, did you? <laughs> yeah, I checked it out. <laughs> That's <So> all right. <laughs> So in the movie, he's a bit mysterious and you don't know whether you can trust him or not. So Mila Kunis's character is obviously attracted to him. But see, as good as that kind of chemistry is, I think that that kind of pales into comparison to how good Kate McKinnon and Mila Kunis are together. It does, but it's just maybe not necessary. I don't know why they put that in there. It's Uh, it's, like the friendship is the most important part. Yeah, that seems the most like studio mandated part, doesn't it? Yeah. Like you you need to have the obligatory love interest as well. But that sounds like the kind of thing that Kate McKinnon would play with quite well. So there's this really funny subplot to do with the head of the spy agency is played by Gillian Anderson. Yeah, from and Kate X-Files. McKinnon oh, is yeah. just in awe of this this woman, <laughs> and it's just yeah. like this weird barrage of compliments she keeps paying her. See that I th- I thought that was a was a funnier kind of weird pseudo relationship that they had evolved there than even the one that they were trying to evolve, which yeah. was the kind of more generic love plot. Kate McKinnon has actually said that Gillian was her like schoolgirl crush. Mm-hmm. So she must have like grown up watching X-Files and like really adored her and then ends up working with her later on. And Kate McKinnon's character really adores this CIA agent and she's like, yeah, so in awe of this like power and femininity that she's still got. And she's like, I want to be you. Some of these films, uh, you know, particularly with SNL cast members, fall into that sort of, they just become setups for them to be in different characters and they don't end up having like a through line or, or like they don't form together very well at the end. Does this fall to that or does it beat that? No, I don't think so. I think the main point of this is the the actual friendship between the two women evolving throughout this as well. Because I think Mila Kunis at the beginning is a very shy sort of person and she's been dating this guy who ends up being the spy and dumping her for a very long time and she's really sad after it. And it's actually Kate McKinnon's character who like pulls her out of that and she's like, you are your own woman, you're your own person, believe in yourself and your abilities and your female empowerment. And at the end, Mila Kunis is like, yeah, shit, I'm really good at this. (laughs) You know what actually surprised me about this movie as well is that it has some impressive action sequences, which is not something I was really expecting from Mm. it, but they, they do some pretty impressive stunts. Like people are getting flipped over cars and cars are turning over and they, they did it all for real, which I'm impressed that they went like that extra mile and were like, look, we obviously have to have some action sequences in this kind of spy romantic comedy, but we may as well make them really good action sequences. And it's even more violent than I was expecting as well. Yeah, there is a pretty creepy assassin character in there as well. This like German woman. Yeah, she Terrifying. Kind of torches them at one point. <laughs> Yeah, instantly scary. Um, She tortures them and then there's this really funny side character that they meet in a taxi and he gets shot in the head and, yeah, so it's a bit violent. I don't trust anyone anymore. You trust me though, right? Yes, of course I trust you. You don't count. Okay, good, because this is not some fake spy friendship that the Russians put together. Dude, shut up. I know. I think what I love about Mila Kunis is that she's long been an advocate for more female representation in the film industry. And she was actually the one who spearheaded the Bad Mums movie because nobody thought it would do really well. And she ended up starring in it and really pushing for it to happen. And she said about this movie that there was a noticeable difference with having a female director that there was like no yelling on set. Everyone was home in time for dinner to have 
family time with their kids and everything, and it was a much more organised, I guess, production. Yeah. <laughs> it's great because it's, it's the trifecta as well, directed by a woman, starring women, and also written mm. by a woman as well, which yeah. I think is great that they can still find box office success and yeah. and this idea that people don't want to see that is kind of Yeah, rubbish. it just goes yeah. to show that female-led movies like this actually can do really well. And I think maybe they were pushing for it to be a bit more, I guess, that traditional uh, male-oriented movie which would have car chases and gun shootouts and explosions and stuff that can be included in a female role movie as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I like the yeah. idea that they didn't, they didn't skimp on it, being like, oh, it's a girl movie. Yeah. We don't need to do that. They did, and they did it well. So you should see this film. Anyone who loves these two actresses, you're going to love it. It's so funny. Um, it's a Yeah, it's a bit for an older audience, um, but it's got a lot of laughs. If you just want to see some kick-ass women. I think this is a good group movie. Like, if you've got a group of friends and you're kind of out for a night, this is the kind of movie that's going to kind of entertain everyone. I've asked him around tomorrow for tea. Chap? Is he a beatnik? No. Beard and sandals? No. What does he do? He's a beatnik. Shut up. So the headline of On Chessel Beach is Saoirse Ronan, right? From Brooklyn, Ladybird, Grand Budapest Hotel, and way back when, surprisingly, Robot Chicken. Okay, but I want to talk about the director for a second, because this podcast has spoken a bunch about the live satellite beamed-in performance shows, right? Swan Lake and whatnot. Well, Dominic Cook, the director of On Chessel Beach, has credits that include live direction for the National Theatre, the Comedy of Errors, which beamed into cinemas, and he's credited as directing last year's National Theatre Live Follies for the stage. And I saw that production in person. It's one of the best live musicals I've ever seen. So I can tell you he's a brilliant director for stage. Cambo, what's he like for film? Well, it's funny that you, you bring up that he's a stage director because as we were watching it, I remember thinking this feels a little bit like a stage play. Mm. It's set, you know, in primarily in one location. There's the odd flashback here or there. But it's a lot of character conflict through conversation, which is very, you know. Very stage. Very stage, yeah. And I think that as far as like a, I know this is based on a book and not a play, but as far as that kind of adaption goes, he's done it really, really well. Like this is such a competently directed movie and I know you know he's not necessarily a, a motion picture guy he's done some Shakespeare adaptations for the BBC the TV stuff I think TV stuff and they are well directed but this is kind of like he's just kind of nailed it right out of the gate what's it about well so there's a young couple Florence and Edward and it's their wedding night they've just been married and they're in a hotel room on Chesil Beach and you can sense that something is wrong and it's all leading up to this, you know, obviously the, the wedding night and, and there's a lot of repression and, and whatnot. And through the film, you flash back in their lives and find out how they've got to this situation, why it is so uncomfortable and why things are not as they seem. Varya, I love Saoirse Ronan. Is she good in this? She does a brilliant job. She needs some award for this or several. <laughs> like she does. There's so much emotion in this and she portrays it in this held back way, but it's so powerful in that, that. It just, yeah, it blew me away. Because it's quite a repressed movie in so many different ways. Like the characters are repressed, but even the yeah. way it's directed, shots will linger for kind of slightly an uncomfortable amount of time. And it, and it, it's, it's so interesting that a movie can make you feel that way, mm. you know. Normally you're watching a screen and you, maybe you feel excited or whatnot, but you feel... You feel like you're in a room with a couple that isn't going well, well and it, you're uncomfortable watching it. That's such it. a play yeah. thing, isn't it? Like where yeah, it is. you know, films cut, they st cut to the next thing, or is in a play, you're just left with these characters on stage for a while. Yeah, the pacing, all the camera angles, it was definitely felt like you're watching a play. Um, but even though the I could watch the 
actors doing a brilliant performance, I struggled to connect with the characters themselves. Like I was trying to reconcile watching what they were doing now, this really awkward struggle that they were having to connect with each other on their wedding night and how they were building their relationship. So we have these flashbacks to them as their romance is blossoming and we meet their families and they come from really different backgrounds. Like Florence is from a high-class society. She's got very upper-crust parents um, and Edward comes from a very working-class background. It's like the song Uptown Girl. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if anyone's much more depressing. It's, yeah. film, it's like a, based on Uptown Girl. <laughs> I'd say that. He's got a very hard family dynamic. He's got a couple of sisters. His mother has been brain damaged from an accident. Um, and But Florence doesn't care about any of that. They just fall in love with each other and they're just so loving and caring towards each other. And then you just watch them going through this awful moment on this beach on their wedding night. And I just felt so uncomfortable. And I guess maybe that was a a choice that they made, that the characters are uncomfortable. I always felt that was a deliberate thing because it's not a pleasant thing that they're going through. And in a way he wants to make you feel as if you were there and you do feel a little uncomfortable being there watching it. But I think that the fact that that movie can pull that out of you means Mm. that he's done a good job. Yeah, so it's based on Ian McEwan's best-selling novel from 2007 and it's set in, what, the late 60s, I think. Um, So it's... Early 60s. Early early 61, I think, yeah. Yeah, so it's based on this, like, the cusp of, like, that's this sexual freedom that we got with the hippie movement in the 60s and 70s and they're still very much, I guess, this 50s proper gender roles, proper class roles and things like that and so... They can be free when they're a couple and learning about each other, but then when they get married, which kind of really turns you off marriage, I guess. That's what I felt. <laughs> they is, get married and everything an, changes. It's a bit of an anti-marriage film sometimes, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> oh, um, well, I'm engaged, so this is <laughs> awkward. Um, so what it shows us is that you definitely have to be open to communication and listening to your partner's needs and wants. And you need to be open to your own self, being true to yourself and what you want and what you need. And see, what, what, what I liked about this movie, I thought, you see, you were saying you didn't connect to the characters. I mm. thought Sasha Ronan's character in particular, I thought they, they did a, a good job of explaining the why she is the way she is. And something she says a lot in the movie is nothing went wrong, like it was perfect. And it's one of the first lines she says in the movie about the wedding. Oh, it was perfect. Nothing went wrong. Like, you know, and then uh, it, when they meet the parents, nothing went wrong. And you see why she is this kind of perfectionist through the movie. And scenes with her and her mother, I think, are really, really powerful scenes because you see that her mother is like that as well and she's never good enough for her mom. And, and it's, I think that's, she is the best developed character in the movie and you really get why she's ended up as this kind of twisted archetype of a woman that she never wanted to be. How is the rest of the cast? We've heard about Saoirse, but the supporting members of the cast, are they just as good? Yes, yeah, so specifically her mother, uh, I think, is, is great. And her family in general, I think, are really good. Because uh, there's a little less known the rest of the cast, I guess. Yeah, it's not like Mamma Mia, you know, you don't have like Colin <laughs> Firth and, and, and Meryl Streep and yep. whatnot. You don't go there for the cast necessarily and I think, the, the big headline, like you said, is Saoirse Ronan. But they're all like just fantastic British dramatic actors. And there's this kind of breed of, of British actor that is just so kind of commanding on screen and they've kind of filled the movie with those smaller British dramatic actors. Yeah, I feel bad, but I know their faces. And I, I think oh, yeah. you'll know them when you see them, but yeah. I don't know their names. Yeah. Mm. It's a classic that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you should see this film. Uh, I think you mentioned Ian McEwan. 
So if you're a fan yeah. of things like Atonement and, and all those movies that are based on his novels, I mean, this yeah. is going to be exactly for you. Yeah. Look, it is a very depressing ending, as British dramas uh, want to be. So be prepared for that. But if you like those very poetic portraits of a situation and characters mm. in this very British drama way, you'll really like it. <laughs> poetic is a lovely way of saying depressing, isn't it? <laughs> also in cinemas this week, Mission Impossible 2. Fans of Tom Cruise falling out of planes? Mission Impossible 2. That was like 2001. Oh, yeah, sorry. We're up to <laughs> six now, aren't we? And if you're a Glenn Close fan, you have a chance to see her on the screen again in The Wife. And, like, such a huge performance from her as well. And to hear more about those, go back to the last week's episode. You can click through on the show notes below. You literally could have taken any kid off the corner. But you chose me. Why? These fools in the streets acting like they got something to prove. They only want to hustle for the money and the flash. But not you. You're special. Exploitation films were all the rage in the 1970s. They tried to, well, exploit the trends of the day to make some cash. They titillate, they play to stereotypes, they're shot from the back seat, they've got no budget. Cars are fast, scripts are improvised, things explode. And in the case of black exploitation films, you find black characters cliched into selling drugs and talking in slang, usually bedeviled by authority. It's the sort of stuff that Quentin Tarantino borrowed a lot for his movies. And one of the absolute classics that Quentin would have seen for sure is Superfly. Vary, I wonder what he'll make of the remake. Yeah, us too. We haven't seen it yet, but I am interested to see if they've got anything new to say because, as you said, it was a black exploitation film from the original Superfly from 1972. And what it's about is this character, Youngblood Priest, played by Trevor Jackson. He's a young, successful drug kingpin, and he wants to retire from the game, but he has to pull off one last score, and he has to double-cross his mentor and deal with the Mexican cartel, and it's classic drug pins, um, shootouts, yeah. Car chases. Just, yeah, all that classic. Running chases. Lots thriller, of chases. horror, action, yeah. male-oriented sort of movie. I'm really interested in this because exploitation came in, in an era where they were feeling repressed, right? And that there were low-budget films made for a black urban audience. And in this kind of day and age, in, in America specifically with this political climate, I understand that want to kind of bring that back and I think it's an interesting contradiction where a lot of people said that, you know, were they harmful because they were turning people into stereotypes or were they empowering because they're taking those stereotypes and turning them into folk heroes? The argument is still out there whether or not that was detrimental or whether that was empowering. Well, there were no yeah. lead black characters in movies at the time. So it was to say, like, well, we can do this. We can make this. Yeah, exactly. And But the, the, what people say against it is, did you have to make them drug dealers and things like that? Like Superfly yeah. is about a drug dealer and, and uh, Dolomite, another famous black exploitation film, is about a pimp. And Shaft and, and movies like that. Yeah, I mean, like in the opening scene of the original, like the first five minutes, there's a full nude sex scene. They've all taken drugs. There's a car chase and a liberal use of the N-word. And in the way they appropriated things like the N-word to make them empowered, I, that's what they were doing with black exploitation as well, saying, if this is what you think of us, you know what? We're going to exploit it. We're going to make powerful black characters in this image that you think. Which I, I actually think, I, I get why in this political climate you'd want to bring that back and you might have something to say. Yeah, the black power movement used it in the 60s and 70s to empower black people because it, these films were the first instances of black characters and communities as the heroes and the subjects of film and TV. So for them, 
even though they might have been stereotypical and perhaps detrimental to this image of what the black community was like, it was the first time they saw people like them on screen. Yeah, a lot of people, as you said, argued against that, saying that it was more detrimental to their image. But yeah, we've got all these strong black characters now with like Black Panther and these superheroes and all these characters on screen. So now they're maybe trying to bring some of that back with Superfly. And what it looks like they're doing as well is they're taking this classic piece of like iconography from the black exploitation, you know, uh, genre, but they're trying to update it for like the notorious and straight out of Compton audience. Even just the, the typeface on the, on the title has gone from the very 70s swirly Superfly to the gold sheen Superfly that looks like it's straight out of the poster of Notorious. Well, I hope they don't change it too much because Superfly's wicked. <laughs> I mean, but, okay, so I, I'm a bit uh, apprehensive in one aspect, which is the the soundtrack to Superfly is like legendary. Yeah. And this new soundtrack is produced by... Yeah, exactly. This new soundtrack is produced by Future. Yeah. Which, you know, Future's great, but is he Superfly original? He's a he's a producer in a hip-hop entrepreneur, I guess. He does many things, but... um. Is he as iconic as the original Superfly centric? But can we expect him to be? You know, it's a hard thing to kind of work mm. out. I mean, that's the whole point of black exploitation is that it's the culture and the style and the music that's iconic of that era and that time. So updating it to more modern tastes, like you can see there, their cars obviously updated, their hairstyles, their costumes, the music, it's all modern. So that's what they've done differently, I guess. We'll just have to see if the plot and the characters have anything new. I wish they had kept the big 1970s handlebar moustache, though. <laughs> that would have been great. And you know what? The director was actually Director X, who's a music video director. Yeah, that's his you name, can... Director X. Yeah. yeah. So he's done everyone in Hollywood, all the big name stars. Um, he's done music videos? Music videos, yeah. <laughs> He's probably done them too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he's done a couple of movies, mostly black character movies. And so maybe he's bringing something new to this one as well. I, I watched a, a video with him where he's breaking down the scene. It was for Vanity Fair. And even his shirt, he's wearing like a button-up shirt and has a big X right across the front. I think he really leans into this director yeah. X thing. Well, I we, think it's like it's from the hip-hop world, isn't it, of like having a name for yourself. And, and not just a name, but like a brand. Yeah, totally. You, yeah, you like completely brand yourself out. That being said... He's actually quite a good director. <laughs> as pretentious as I find that, calling yourself Director X and dressing with X's everywhere and whatnot, he's actually a, a better director than, than I guess you would maybe give that credit for on face value. And he actually described Superfly, both the remake and the original, as Hood Shakespeare. That's what he saw it as. <laughs> it's like this this is their Shakespeare, you know. So who should see this film? I mean, we're, we're three white people standing in the cinema talking about this. Is this just for black audiences? Uh, no, I mean, I think the, the things that they go through are kind of universal. And why they might be black characters, I think it, it opens it up to more than just, you know, a black audience. I think if you're into the current trend of, you know, All Lives on Me and Taurus and Straight Outta Compton, which I, I've been consistently kind of great films, I think this is the black exploitation equivalent of those modern films. Yeah, even Fast and the Furious, it's got that sort of vibe. So those sorts of like fast car movies, if you want to hear something with a really good soundtrack um, and you like drug cartels and fights and gangs and cool stuff that <laughs> I'm not very cool at. And, and if, you, if you didn't get enough of that with On Chesil Beach, then, <laughs> then maybe Superfly will you know, satiate that need. Yeah, we'll probably split the audience this time, 50-50, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> 
Now, each week we have a Village Cinemas Gold Class double pass to give away. You just have to answer the question we were talking about at the top. What's the worst excuse for a breakup? To win, send your answer and contact details to win at thecinemacrew.com.au. Next week, Jason Statham meets a 70-foot shark. Is that, that's pretty much all you need to know, I think, about yeah, pretty the much. mech. Also, the latest, I think I'm required by law to say this, Spike Lee joint is on its way. And Jordan Peele from Key & Peele, director of Get Out, he called Spike Lee one day and said, you won't believe this story. Anyway, now it's a movie. And you've got to listen next week for that. And The Darkest Minds. Adult fiction is a hotly contested field these days. Too often, the writers seem to reach for tropes like vampires and witches. Well, The Darkest Minds appears to go for a whole new kind of dystopia. Until then, thanks, Cambo. Thank you. Thanks, Vari. Thanks. I'm Kyron Wheatley, and this is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas.